What do you want? I want to know everything you know, Emery. Perfume counter, Laura Palmer, Ronette Pulaski, and One-Eyed Jacks. <laughs> You're insane. <laughs> I'm insane? Well, I'm Audrey Horn, and I get what I want. This is the Twin Peaks Rewatch Podcast, hosted by the Idle Thumbs Network. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. And this week, we are discussing the 10th episode of Twin Peaks, known as Coma. Yes, this was directed by David Lynch, written by Harley Payton, and it first aired October 6th of 1990. Um, Harley Payton also wrote episode 6, Realization Time, which was when... Uh, Cooper and Ed first go to One-Eyed Jacks. Mm-hmm, right. Um, and think, he, I remember we learned at the time that he ended up becoming a pretty important part of the writer's room. Oh, he also wrote show. Um, the fourth episode. Yeah. Which was the one that happened right after Cooper had that dream. What was inter- The thing that's notable, I guess, about the writing of this episode is that it, it really... It was directed... So this episode was directed by Mark... By David Lynch. By David Lynch, obviously. Yes. And I feel like you can really feel that. It's really yeah. obvious this is another... Ex- it's a Lynch another, episode, but it's also but not... But it's not a it's Mark not, Frost episode. And it's also not one of the Keystone episodes of the plot. Like, Lynch usually... Yeah, but I feel like a lot of times that comes along with whether it's written by Mark Frost or not. That's true. But, like, there's just... There is no turning point stuff inside yes. of this episode. It's, it's... Yes. Which is... it's Yeah, you're right. It's notable because Mark Frost isn't involved, but Lynch is directing. But also because we get to see Lynch direct... A just total midpoint episode, which I don't mm-hmm. think he does anywhere else in the show. I think this is his only episode that's just sort of like stuff happened. Right. So there are a lot of sort of nuances and a, and a lot of deepening of the supernatural stuff, but not a lot of actual forward progression. So, I mean, yeah. on that note, in well, this episode, okay, yeah, let ahead. me just recap real quick. The investigation slows a bit after last week's extreme uh, progress and in information. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, Donna starts to dig a little deeper. Um, the mill conspiracy hits a few snags. The supernatural world further asserts itself at this point, and Audrey's situation becomes more yes. dire. And I think the the sort of supernatural weird, like, the giant and all of this weird unexplainable happenings that exist mm-hmm. inside people's brains or not, I think those things asserting themselves out into the world is probably why Lynch ended up taking this episode, because it's sort yeah. of in the third episode of the first season and in last episode are the two other times that that is re- that that stuff is really sort of punched through other than little glimpses of Bob. But this episode, like it kind of just goes all in on it. Like, yep. Yeah. Uh, so we we're taking a stab at organizing this episode more by kind of character and character group and subject matter, as opposed to by sort of scene or specific plot thread. We'll see how it goes. You can give us feedback as always at twin peaks at idle thumbs.net. Um, Starting off with the investigation, which doesn't really doesn't make much progress this series. Or I'm sorry, this episode. Um, Cooper and Albert are going over the case, uh, kind of I guess just sort of discussing what's what's already happened. Um, Albert thinks Leo is the mill arsonist. Well done. Um, the thing that's great about this scene is there's this barbershop quartet <laughs> just kind of cooing in the background. It's really quiet. When it first, when I first saw that in the background, I just did like a huge eye roll and I was like, Oh, twin peaks. Da, da, da. <laughs> and then I sort of thought, well, okay. I mean, it's ridiculous. That there's a barbershop quartet there and it's totally just this like affected style, goofy, whatever. Also like, I mean, just as far as their presence at all is obviously a choice to just mm-hmm. to have something goofy in there. But then it's like, the Great Northern also, for some reason, is a hotel that just has weird people in it. But then as the scene carried on and as that just became the contrasting background audio to the conversation, it was so good. Oh, the thing I love about it is that all they're ever doing is basically humming and cooing. Yeah. Whereas just they're so clearly in the shot wearing these really what bright yellow outfits. The temptation to have them just break out into some kind of standard or something You'd think it would be hard to pass up, but they're just kind of there. No, it's adding a really subtle element to the audio the whole time. In this, in the strange tradition, apparently, in this show of 
audio that comes out of a jukebox that is bad lamenti, whereas it should actually be some other diegetic <laughs> thing. In this, we have this what... basically part of the soundtrack. But it's the opposite. Yeah, we have yeah. what should be non-diegetic, just strange David Lynch music to set the scene and create a counterpoint, but the actual barbershop quartet is just in the background singing yes. it just to be Except, there. Except, again, they're say- it's so muted. That right, that's what really I mean. Like, it seems like, it's it seems like score. audio fabric, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, it's, but it's people But it's there. actually there. Yeah. yeah. You're right. It's the opposite of his usual jam. Yeah. Um. So... Yes, that's happening the whole time. Um, then there's the, the, we talked last week, obviously, about the, like, one of the most bizarre and memorable scenes in all of Twin Peaks, which is the weird room service guy. And Albert directly, I was so glad, saying, the, the world's most decrepit room service waiter remembers nothing. Yep. So that is just fully, yeah, no, that real. There's nothing about that that is in any way. Yeah, no, it is, it is the most real. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> like I love that that like it's 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 one of those dorky things, but sort of just by Albert saying that, obviously that is just yeah, like it collapses the it's, possibility. It's at the space, same level yeah. of importance as Leo Johnson getting shot or mm-hmm. as Cooper getting shot. Like they're just right. that it it's all yep. fully fully real. I think that seemed like such a like stylistic yes, weird flourish exactly, or yeah. like uh-huh. A dream, a subjective or a, experience of some kind, yeah, yeah. or or just like it, was, or it was in the episode as a huge metaphor for mm-hmm. the audience or the structure of the show or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was like, uh, maybe also just a reminder: it is the He's least that, helpful that room service man. <laughs> it's just a shitty old guy who's yep. worthless. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, it was good. Um, this scene also had so all the dialogue in this scene was just great. Also. Oh yeah, no, no, it's all really good. Um, but I think the function it kind of serves, especially if you've seen the show before, and we won't. We're not going to actually spoil anything, but you know, the premiere of season two is just jam packed with information about all of the core threads from, from season one. Um, yeah, either bring them to a climax or significantly pushing them ahead. Whereas this scene, basically the first episode after that occurs starts to set in motion a bunch of other things, but that's it. It it's, touches it, it's on it's not even this leaves. scene. I feel like this episode, a lot of the yeah. a lot of the story threads true. are cracking the seal on yeah. new directions for arcs, on new story arcs, and yes. it's it's sort of like okay, we got past the cliffhanger, which was effectively part two mm-hmm. to the final episode of season one, right? And now it's time to sort of venture into new territory because yeah. I don't want to jump too far ahead. But in addition to to Wyndham Earl being mentioned. There's also yeah, this like, character. We haven't heard that name yet. No, that name is just yes. that's the first time that anyone says mm-hmm. anything. But obviously, it's not the first time either yes. Albert or Cooper have it's heard it. It's introduced with cl- a clearly portentous and Albert and Cooper. Overture. Like I love his last episode had them both say Teresa Banks at the same time, mm-hmm. yeah. and this episode he says the name Wyndham Earl, and Cooper just goes whoa, mm-hmm. and like the little tiny drops that these two characters have when they're sharing dialogue that that paint a crazy shared history of their career. I, I love, but well also as soon as Wyndham Earl is mentioned, the camera starts ominously panning over to the left to the point where you probably think Wyndham Earl, whoever this right, is, whoever is sitting there, there. And then oh, it's just that guy. It's that guy who was calling, who uh, Josie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, well, all I was going to say, jumping back to sort of new stories, starting to show up is you get the scent. Like we've not met a lot of new characters for many episodes at this point after the yeah. early season one was just going crazy. Mm-hmm. But now we have, Donna investigating meals on wheels and it's um it's she's meeting new faces we've never seen which who know and she's making inquiries into plot threads that we've never touched on yeah and then also um we're starting to learn that major briggs had he had a weird thing to tell cooper that is related to his job you know like mm-hmm. um just new sort of weird tendrils both in terms of the mystery and in terms of just new characters and new threads are definitely mm-hmm. coming up this episode mm-hmm. which again maybe is why david lynch directed it yeah uh so you want to talk about the horn fan or like the mill stuff mill yeah. conspiracy it's pretty yeah. quick in it's this pre- episode also it's fairly quick yeah so uh ben and jerry want to are trying to figure out which ledger to burn the thing that was funny about this to me is that they spend basically no time. They sort of they're like, well, do we burn do we burn this one or do we burn burn this one? Not going to burn this cheese pig. That's for sure. That's locked down on that one. Definitely not that. Anyway, whatever. Who cares? Like they they dump it almost immediately. 
It ends with something's good a bird. So how about those marshmallows? And he's like, where are those yeah, hickory you, sticks? Where are those hickory but sticks? Like, there, I like a, a lot of stuff about this was kind of good though. Cause they outline, it was the first time you've ever heard one character just say, here's what Catherine was doing with the ledgers. That's true. Here's where we land on this. This is our motive or this is what it was. But now it feels like we've put everything on Josie. So maybe we should do that. I don't know. I don't know. But like you hear, you finally hear the horns talking between themselves about their stupid convoluted yeah, you, thing yes. but then true to their character it feels like they're just kind of like we're maybe we'll just make a choice and whichever one works yeah. we'll, <laughs> we'll end just, up on top because we'll we're just, the horns we'll, yes, like we'll just track down all those loose ends ag- yeah. again until somehow they're all yeah. swept under the rug like and then we'll eat marshmallows they and, seemed and a pig. they seemed Jeez. both sort of as befuddled and as kind of like lackadaisical at this point right. about the mill <laughs> storyline as everyone else is who's watching it like yes because that was such a heated crazy f- back and forth in the first season and then just like oh everything burned down Catherine is like in, in the fire shelly wh- whatever that was like it just sort of like goes Bleh, like it, mm-hmm. all those threads collided and just kind of just extinguished each other right ironically in a fire <laughs> so later in the episode but on the same thread um jerry comes back with Catherine's unsigned insurance policy um, and again, they're like, well, they're like, oh, well, well, we'll make the best of what whatever this do? is. Yep, exactly. And then Leland shows up in his like new form, which seems to be extremely enthusiastically incompetent. Like yep. Leland's reborn self is really excited to be hanging out and doing stuff with people, but also like over eager. But yeah, really over eager and constantly turning everything into, into a disaster. Yeah. Um, so he like. They find out that he has... Well, because at first he was like, we should tell the Icelanders about the things right. that are going on. <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah, we'll handle it. And then they call them up and then you... It's, oh, Leland Palmer told you about the right. mill fire and he's just beaming like, yep, I've done like, my I perfect job. I'm helping. <laughs> I'm, which has potentially torpedoed the entire deal. Right. Or at least it's another thing that the horns now have to be like, yes. okay, we're just constantly in managing weird, mode. like, specific nationality to try and yeah. su- supplicate. Um. I guess the main point of that, though, is to allow uh, Leland to notice the wanted poster. Oh, with right. The, with the police sketch of Bob. He sees the police sketch of Bob, and then he says, I know this man. And he, like, Yeah, he says, my grandfather's summer house. He lived right next door. I was just a little boy. It sounded like he recognized him and was made incredibly uncomfortable by seeing him. Yeah. Like, we don't know anything about bob and leland's connection then well this is the first i mean as as far as i'm aware this is the first moment in the show that we are aware of somebody consciously recognizing bob right earlier in the actual in this actual episode they show the picture to run it and it comes no but i mean i mean from before the events of the murder oh yes like this is the first time time someone's been like like, this is a guy who i've seen walking around who didn't just appear murder laura palmer and leave right yeah 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 for sure like we've seen bob in visions and like all we've seen him in all kinds of contexts but for leland to have a a childhood memory saying from my actual life like i know this person and he doesn't comment either way, but the impression that I've always gotten when when I remember this scene is that Leland is the way that the way that that Ray Wise plays it also is just like he feels baffled that he's seeing the exact face that he's seeing, which has always painted to me the idea that when he saw Bob as a child, he looked he identical. looked exactly yes. like this, mm-hmm. um, which like that's never stated, but because he, he's just like what? No, I read it the same way. Yeah, yeah, he just the way that the way that 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 actor plays. Yeah, seeing that picture is no, just Ray Wise awesome. is incredible as Leland in basically every way. Yeah. Um. So real quick, I don't even know if is there any anything to say about Lucy and Andy. I am. It is crazy to me that so basically Lucy shows up and or Andy shows up, tells Lucy that he's sterile, couldn't have this been. This is the why I don't know why you'd yeah, be pregnant. She slams the door in his in his face. Yeah. What? What is the point of these characters? It's I forgot how incredibly slow this like. They have been involved basically in the exact same like chill towards one another for the entirety of this so it's show. Like the second so episode, far. yes, yeah, it is bizarre. I I completely forgot. I know. I always re- I always remember on. Andy's contributions, like his arc with the investigation, like him firing the gun, dropping the gun, getting hit by the plank, finding right. the evidence, and I always remember him and Lucy's thing as just like a beat, right. Well, I remember all the stuff that comes after this, and I keep waiting for it to happen, and it still just keeps yeah. taking forever. Yeah. yeah. 
Whatever. All right. So um, they are they are just the most slowly drawn out stupid soap opera storyline. Yep. Uh, in the world. Yep. It's as you say, as you pointed out, it's losing Andy's invitation to love. Yep. But uh, speaking of that. Leo and Shelley. Oh, yeah. Leo and like, Shelley. The what actual. We're in the Invitation to Love segment of this week's uh, Twin yes. Peaks rewatch. Yeah. So, uh, so Dr. Because Hayward explains. That, well, first, let's just, we'll move on from the pregnancy drama to the character who is in a coma <laughs> and may be uh, taken in the under the. Cash cow. Yeah. Under uh, the wing patient. of, like, the lovers that put yeah. him in the coma. Yes. She, so, <laughs> do you think there's any genuineness to Shelley's tearful reaction to. Dr. Hayward, or is that entirely put on? I thought that there was some genuine stuff to it. I mean, like, yeah. even if they're not, like, madly in love with each other or whatever, they haven't, I feel like they probably have enough of a life together that hearing, well, like, it's got to be, you've got to be thinking about a lot of different things potentially as Shelley and feeling kind of bad about it was sort of how, sure. I, how I thought, where she's like, that's true. Where she's unless, like, he's not, she's he's like, not dead. I feel bad for this guy. Yeah, it's like, more I kind like, of thought that maybe Leo yeah. was going to be dead and he's not. Maybe I'm terrible for feeling that and hoping that he was dead. Right. Now that he's alive, he's like, not really alive. Yeah, it's a weird like or you know situation. the doc because Doc Hayward's like all we have now is time. He might have brain damage. He might be in this vegetative state. Yeah, he might come back. So I think like then when the question is raised later by Bobby of do we care for him, which is Bobby's proposal. It's got yeah, a, Shelley's that, really conflicted about this. Yeah, that has to be a mix. A Bobby's mix like, let's go for five thousand bucks a month. Yeah, I, I, I like that Shelley immediately is way more of an adult man. Bobby, Bobby's kid to his life situation mm-hmm. contrast was high in this episode because yes. like they're hanging out, like making out, uh, and then he was like, uh, "Oh man, what's the, which car was it that his dad had?" Which man. car was it? Yeah, because uh, they were ta- she, Shelley and Bobby were making out. And then they were talking about let's get comfortable in this car, uh, or let's let's get comfortable. Then it's like that's why I got my dad's Continental. Oh yeah. <laughs> but but then when also by the way they're sitting there in the car just like jamming to like greaser rock. Yeah. Basically, this show is a weird. That's just fifties like, preoccupation. Yeah. Crappy stereotypical bo- like Bobby's archetype yeah. would have that music associated with him, even though he would not in the nineties, right? Or in eighty nine or whatever. But then the other the other the like. That's why I got my dad's Continental. The other one of those is when Bobby was like, we can get all the money for taking care of Leo. And Shelly was immediately like, yeah, I do have a lot of bills that I really should take care of. And Bobby was like, bills? What are you talking about? Who pays bills? Like, whoops. uh, One of you has a real life and responsibilities. And one of you is Bobby Briggs. It's like, oh, man. He's just like, Leo's in a coma. Now we can just make out in my dad's car. We can just get money for no reason and have a great time. And Shelly's like, my life is terrible in a new way. (laughs) Like maybe this will help a little bit, but I ah. Yep. Yep. Um <laughs> oh, uh, man. So Audrey? Oh, also just the shot with uh the whole I mean the whole scene with uh Doc Hayward and Leo and Shelley was mm-hmm. I think all delivered from one camera angle or very close. But, yeah, I think it was pretty But at least the master shot of that one or two. was the most deliberate and hilarious shot of all time with the two of them sitting there. Uh, oh, and then because the, they're the all left to right, thing. and then yeah, because yeah. Leo's laid out along yes. the bottom of the frame, but then the mirror just puts a circular like just inset Leo composition face. of Leo's yeah. face just <laughs> between the two of them, yeah, really and then good. the and then the scene ends with just a slow dolly shot into yes. the mirror. Yes, uh, yeah, David Lynch loves that stuff. Oh man, but just the deliberateness of that composition just felt like it was like it, obviously very different lighting and style and whatever else than uh, than Blue Velvet, but it felt like it came out of the same like. 60s melodramatic film sort of situation like it feels like it like was the sort of thing that you would expect to see in like a like douglas Sirk or king veter movie or something just like super 60s like <laughs> yeah except that that mirror would actually be like a painting of someone's grandmother who they were betraying and it would be like in a gilded yeah. in a gilded chrome frame yeah. instead of being a hospital but just that shot yeah. oh man mm-hmm. anyway um that's all yeah i forgot about that that was a great yeah that was a great pretty great shot um so audrey her whole she gets way deeper into it this episode. Uh, she find, I can't remember the name of the manager from the department store, but she sort of intercepts an ice bucket on the way to him. And uh, You can't remember the setup? No, the name of the guy. Oh, yeah, I can't remember the name of the guy. But the, the way that that scene opens, it's, it's, the, it's actually the second scene in the episode, right? Because it's, yeah, it's, it's really early in It the just episode. starts by showing ropes tying up hands. Yeah, and you don't know who it is. That's and great. then it shows feet yeah. with the, with yeah, the cotton great. balls inside of them. And you're like... 
I know this is one I jacks, but and, like, and what a is woman it? vacuuming. Yep. And well, you don't re- see the vacuuming woman until Audrey comes in. Oh, that's true. Because you just see that's you're true. like, you're is right. this like a you're torture right. thing? What is this like? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's probably just a weird BDSM thing, or like someone's mm-hmm. being tied up, whatever. But then, then Audrey yeah, gets the ice bucket and goes inside, and you're just like, <laughs> what? What in the world is yep. going on in here? Yeah, it, that's and then it's revealed to be the manager. Although I didn't recognize him until Audrey took the mask off of him. I, I didn't either. I don't think you're supposed to. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, her unplugging the vacuum. And him being upset about that. He's like, I don't hear vacuuming or whatever it is that he says. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man. Um, yeah, so she just likes... I guess she's at this point basically just confirming things she already knows, right? Because yeah. I mean, she knows that her dad is the owner. What a nonsensical, ridiculous plan on Audrey's part. Yeah, I, mean, I like, what even she just, thinks going to happen here? Like, putting the, the news around that guy and being like... Or, because... That scene, the dialogue in that scene was was really strong, but it was just so obvious the entire time that even though that guy was in a pickle and telling her information to get her off his back, mm-hmm. there was no way. Like, what did Audrey think was going to yeah, happen what right happened then? after that? I mean, she gets her line out there, I'm Audrey Horn and I get what I want, which is really, like, classically associated with this character, right? Right. But, but, but like, but what does she think comes after that? Yeah. yeah. Was... I mean, she, yes, she basically gets totally... Um, totally owned this episode because that it doesn't come back till way at the very end of the episode at the end but when it does uh she's in it deeper than she ever was before yep um yeah i don't know yeah i mean she does learn a ton of stuff like it's a success in that regard she learns that laura got thrown out due to drug use yep which isn't something we knew that like that was actually a thing that was even um it wasn't yeah Yeah. sort of had she always been working at one eye jacks but it seems like there's then not really a connection between One-Eyed Jacks and sort of Jacques Renault's Flesh World crew. Right. Other than he happened to work at both places. It seemed like there's like there's no formal connection between those two things, right. it seems like. Right, right, right. Um, yep. But yeah, the, the, the manager saying Laura always got what she wanted, just like you, was the end of that scene. Mm-hmm. And like that didn't strike me as a zing. It struck me as him like... As like subservience and and Audrey kind of like getting the upper hand and winning the scene, even though it didn't make any sense. But then when you see him at the end, you're yeah, like, it's definitely, oh, that was actually him kind of. Yeah. Uh, I, even at the time, I took that as kind of like he's being smarmy. He's cutting both ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it was revealed to cut 100 percent in his favor yeah. uh, at the end. But we, yeah. can get, we can get back to that later. Um, But yeah. Oh, and then uh, I mean, I guess sort of. Basically, what is actually also happening parallel to this is Ben Horn calls Truman to say that Audrey's missing and Cooper overhears this. Oh, so, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it's just a reminder that Ben Horn has no idea that he was sexually teasing his own daughter dressed yep. up in a mask last, last yeah, night he, or whatever. He also waited until Audrey was gone for two days, which that's I true, imagine yeah. given given her given who audrey is yeah. and who he is that's about how long he'd wait before being like just so you uh, know anyway she might be somewhere yeah, he's not even freaked out about it but no he's not he's like uh calling this one in i guess but uh cooper responds pretty strongly to that news yes for sure um i guess we'll also get back to that um so uh what else do we have we have the other high school kids there's Donna, James, and Maddie. Well, Donna, Mills, and Wills first, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So this is this is the thing about the this, the high school kids story. It's it's strange, but it feels like it's kind of um, it's kind of the fulcrum of this episode because both Donna's they're they're doing like Donna's sort of pursuing the um, she's investigating Meals and Wheels because she got the lead from the letter that Norma gave her, and it's her sort of this is her extension of her James and Maddie's like, let's examine uh, the murder of Laura ourselves. Let's sort of do what we can, but it's also her sort of trying to put her feet literally into, well, literally into Laura's sunglasses, but figuratively into her (laughs) shoes. Um, And I don't think this is the turn that it would have taken for Laura either, but her digging into this stuff immediately takes a turn for the complete crazy. Yeah. When she goes and like, what seems like the, hmm? not good. Oh, like the the first meal that she drops is to this uh, this old woman, 
and I guess her is it her son? No, grandson. grandson. Her grandson, grandson who looks or like David a minute. Lynch's son. Yeah, David Lynch's son who just is dressed up like a baby David Lynch. Yep. It was good. With the same hair. Yeah, just like a miniature David Lynch. Um, and she ends up in this scene that has the crazy, uh, the crazy stuff with the cream corn, but then it also has like the the weird madness of that kid being a miniature David Lynch yeah. who then does the aggressive hand clap thing that is evocative of he snaps, right? Or he snaps. snaps. Fingers, yeah, yeah, he snaps, which is evocative of of Cooper's dream in the in the red room with the with the let's rock and all mm-hmm, that stuff. Right. I don't know. It's just oh man. Um I don't know if I would if I would have the the patience for this scene if the kid didn't look like David Lynch and introduce that weird meta element. Yeah. Because it feels so overly trying to be it's almost like, like a weird experimental film weird that a student and, would make or something yeah, exactly yeah. but it doesn't have any of the same um like striking imagery or like r- really inventive kind of surrealness of the scenes like that in twin peaks that are actually really successful the thing that so yeah that's that's true the the reason that i think i held or that it held my attention entirely is because Everything about the way that the scene was paced and the actual writing in the scene and the events in it, had all the characters been speaking backwards, it would be exactly the same cadence and weird series of events of Cooper's dream. Yes. The pacing of it is great. I mean, the it is very – it's a totally classic Lynch thing in terms of taking things that are on their face very mundane and infusing them with a sense of just – creeping crawling right because like there's the thing with do you see the cream corn on the plate she looks then she asks if you see it again it's in the son's hands yeah but then she just says my grandson is studying magic and then donna's like oh that's nice and like as if that's gonna somehow diffuse things but it seems it kind of does but i but it's but it never makes it not incredibly unsettling right nerve-wracking but i i agree that the, the execution of the scene as a whole scene not as strong as I feel like it yeah. should be, but I still liked a lot of little bits sure. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But also just what it means for the bigger storyline was, I guess, more important to me when watching it than than the individual scene, which is a bummer because that's usually not what yeah. I respond to in this show. But um, I just liked that Donna is sort of treading off yes. the map of her life and right. ends up in this closed room with this woman um, – who remarks also they used to send me hospital food, which was funny to me yeah, because no, after the <laughs> previous episode, I was like, I know what that would have been like. Yes, right. Um, instead of a meal from the double R. But then this woman also tells her to go talk to Mr. Smith next door, who was one of Laura's good friends. Yeah, which she which she attempts to do, is seen by that guy, leaves a note for him. He calls her later. Yep. Yeah. Um, but before that happens, she... Uh, Donna goes over, <laughs> I guess, to... Or Donna goes home... And later that night, she, James, and Maddie are engaging in a really ridiculous teen activity of recording a song together. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the str- – I think this is maybe the weirdest scene in the entire series of Twin Peaks. <laughs> really? Because it's it's – because I don't know what world this is, that that is what these kids are doing. Well, the thing about it is it's presented like it's shot and the type of music that it is and the way that it's lit and like the way that all their faces look – they're shot the way that Lynch shoots the performance in the Roadhouse in the pilot. Yeah, there's like an insane amount of delay and but, reverb on but James' the notion, terrible voice. But the notion of three kids deciding that they're going to use a single or multi-track recorder to record a stupid love song that he wrote on the guitar, and then them getting in a stupid little tiff over the fact that during a particular yeah. verse, two of the characters yeah, lock eyes. Like, yeah, right. All of that totally tracks as just like these are doofy teens doing doofy teen stuff when they're all kind of locked up in their house because they have nothing to do yeah I guess. but the presentation of it and the specifics of the type of song and like everything about it is just completely bonkers like, and ridiculous i, I want to know what the half an hour leading up to like before that camera though that shot starts <laughs> i like what were they practicing the harmonies like what was going on in that I, house I that so. day i hope because they all just everyone just knows when to come in and what they're singing right, and they're james singing james had to have been like Oh, it was a song that I, was... I do this, you got to be like, and I, but you both got to do it though. Right. But like only the first time I, I wrote, I wrote some harmony parts. Yeah. I wrote them uh, for both of you. <laughs> yeah. Also it's, a, it's the lyrics are just you and I together forever in love. This song explicitly about two people. And I know. Well, it's three people. It's, it's the most constructed thing in the world. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. I guess these are the most sort of 
idiotically naive teens, especially James and Maddie, right? I guess Don is sort of like pushing out of that role. Yeah, but she well, that's also the end of this scene is kind of the, the end of the scene is just Donna like crashing into a thousand things all at the same yeah. time because Maddie and James lock eyes, which makes Donna just get up and leave, which yeah. turns the recording of the song off. Like oh, the right, yeah. just, the, it, the, just, yeah. it just stops. And then James goes James goes over to her and says, What's wrong? And she says, Nothing. And then makes out with him, like yeah, just yep. mushes her face into his face. Yep. Uh-huh. Which it, and then we see Maddie looking really awkwardly yep. on, which is then it was like her face was really good because it it was her like it felt like she and James did have a little bit of a moment for a second, and yeah, she was yeah. kind of well, she happy gives about him it. Kind of a coy look, yeah, yeah. But then seeing James and Donna just mush into each other, right. the face that she made was actually like, "Oh, I'm actually slightly older than you. I'm not in high school anymore." Like that's <laughs> that's what I, I'm like. Oh, sorry yeah. that I was interested in you for half a second here. Yeah, well, that was whoops, my mistake. Whoops. I I forgot. <laughs> Never this. mind. This is I'm just here visiting my uncle Leland. <laughs> but. <laughs> But then the, James and Donna in the middle of that, and then the dad being like, Donna, there's a, uh, what is it? It's like, like Mr. Smith there's a Mr. Harold him. Smith would yeah. like to talk to you on the phone. And then Donna has to pick up the phone with James. Yeah. She, she gets mad that James is locking eyes. Then she just takes a call from a boy in her house. Yeah. And James is just like, patiently <laughs> wait this I'll out. I'll be here. <laughs> oh, man. It was just. Well, also then while this is happening, uh, this is the scene, right? Where Maddie sees Bob. That's the end of it. Well, yeah. okay. So before we get to that, just to this scene's credit, I really do like that the opening of it is just stylized nonsense, like complete, absolute nonsense. But then it derails into actual, just realistic feeling teen betrayal and like crazy right. lives and not quite communicating well. Like, because everything after Donna rips out of the music feels genuine in its sure. awkwardness to me, where it's just like. Sure. What's give, wrong? Give Nothing. Making out a call from yeah. a boy. Like, well, yeah. it's just, it's all like just those two archetypes bouncing off of each other. But just yeah. like it, it's, a, it's, I don't know, the, the breaking point in the middle of those two things. It doesn't try to stay inside of that space at all. Like it just, it, sure, it's it true. breaks out. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, it's, there's then, that moment of extreme artifice and then it just, it drops it as soon as it's broken. But then, yeah, as, as that sort of starts quieting down, um, Maddie looks across the living room in a moment that feels very, very, very much like Sarah Palmer being bothered by the stairwell in her house. Yes. And then it cuts back to Maddie and then it cuts back. And instead of it just being unsettling, we see Bob just starting to creep through the yeah, house directly towards the camera in a way that is completely weird. Like whatever the, I guess it's just a very, very wide angle lens because he goes from being tiny to just feeling yeah, to like he's bigger the than the furniture. Like yeah. he's just knocking oh, the yeah. house over. Like yeah, it almost, it is a terrifying yeah. shot. It's um, it's really amazing. Yeah. Oh man, it's good. Um, and Maddie, of course, yeah, freaks out. Just kind of loses her shit over it because yeah. <laughs> because whoa. But uh, yeah. I mean, and then that doesn't that segue directly into like um. Yes, it's sort of it's uh. Yeah, well, first, first Maddie calms down and she looks and we just see the same shot, but it feels disarmed because Bob is gone. And right. then it cuts to the Great Northern and Cooper asleep. Right. And we, I think it's like the giant is like waving his yeah, hand Yeah, you see over. the giant wave his hand over Cooper. And then we sort of go then, into this. And then Ronette kind of remember. We, we cut to like Ronette remembering Bob. Well, it's strange. It's kind of like a disassociated. It's strange because I couldn't tell if that was. Sequence we, of if, memories. If when it shows Ronette, if we were seeing Cooper remember oh, showing Bob because earlier in the episode they visit Renette and they show the same picture of Bob that Leland responds to to her and the right. way that it's presented is she kind of half awakens and you see this really well, she's like, well we know she's awake she's awake she's but not talking not but, talking, but yeah. sorry she awakens to the presence of the picture of Bob because yeah. it starts with a really high contrast sort of like really dimly lit out of focus image of his face that then slowly comes into focus. Then she recognizes it and starts hyperventilating. Right. And she starts saying something that Cooper thinks is the word train where he's like a train. Are you at the train? Do you, do you, do you, do you think? And like, I don't, I don't think she was saying train, but Cooper like catches that thread and sticks to it. But then way here, way late in the episode after Maddie has her vision of Bob, the thing that Cooper is seeing, he's seeing Renette stirring in bed. But then the thing that is, that it's cutting to is, is out of focus actual Bob 
slowly getting closer to the camera and slowly coming into yeah, focus, which is uh, exactly the thing that he shows her. Yeah. So I think that it's, it is either a dream that he's having that's sort of a weird re revisit of that sequence, but what Renette's seeing, or we are cutting to Renette sort of reliving right that moment, that moment, yeah. but what it appeared to in her brain, because it's totally the same shot, but just with the actor instead yeah, of with the police portrait. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and then we, um, Oh, did we skip over some stuff? Like what? Um, probably. What did we jump? I feel like we, we, I feel like we jumped something. Oh, right. Cause we're just talking straight about Cooper's dream. Cause it's the next thing that happened. Yeah. But an important thing that feeds into this, that is earlier in the episode is, um, and this is sort of, it feels like they're sort of the, these two vague, vaguely related supernatural things that, that end up colliding into Cooper's dream. And one of them is Maddie and Donna's brushes with, the stuff that kind of is reminiscent of the Red Room and Bob, but then also um, mm, Major Briggs. Major Briggs meets yeah. the log lady in, in the diner earlier, and she and he talks to her, her and she says, "My log has has something to tell you." The same yeah. thing she says to other people, and it's just what is the thing that the log says? Just like deliver you deliver it's deliver the message or something like that. Yeah. Uh, hold on. It says. Oh um, yeah, it just says yeah. The log tells Major Briggs deliver the message, and she says, "Do you understand?" And he says, "Yes, ma'am." As a matter of fact, I do. Yeah. Um. He, I really like that interaction because I I think that um, Major Briggs and the Log Lady are among the most those two characters are uh, among the major characters in this town or at least on the show they're among the most at peace with themselves of any. Yep, I feel like neither of them is under any has any insecurity about who they are as people, even though they're totally different people. Right, um, they're both like very plain spoken in their own way. Right. I mean, the log lady is cryptic as hell, but like from her perspective, all she's doing is just like saying these things that she has to say. And then that's it. And she doesn't say any more or less right. than she has to. She just puts it out there. Um, Major oh. Briggs is a little different in that he's very sort of eloquent and, and um, um, kind of gentle, Yeah, but he's similarly like careful with his words. He says what he's going to say and then he's yes. done saying it. And so he, unlike a lot of characters, even more so, I think, than Cooper, of all people, who is sort of the, like, poster child for um, uh, courtesy, right, on this show. Right. Briggs, more than anyone and else. And sort of Cooper will like, just sort of roll with it. Right. But Briggs, more than anyone else, like, shows the log lady a very, like, the same level of courtesy he would show to anybody. Yeah, she says, my log has a message for you. Would you like to hear it? And he's just like, yeah, yes. I don't think he says yes, literally, but it's basically just like, yeah, he's, he's completely, he's like, of course I'll listen to whatever that is. And then, and then the message is delivered. And he just goes, Oh, I did understand that. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, she says, can you hear it? And he says, no, ma'am, I cannot. Um, but he's not saying it like to ridicule her. He's just saying, right. no, I so cannot she says, hear so I'll it. translate. Yeah. And then he, and then he asks if, she, if he understands and he says, yes. Um, I love that. And the, and the whole thing of they, I guess their, um, exchange where I guess this is the first time they've met. I don't know. I, um, it's at least the first time they've met on camera. Yeah. She says, you wear shiny objects on your chest. He says, yes, I do. Are you proud? Achievement is its own reward. Pride obscures it. They they both speak in such a clipped way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she's asking questions and he's But they understand them, but... exactly what each other is saying. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then that's it. Well, they... it's, it's interesting also because as we sort of – when he comes to Cooper's room with the reams and reams of tractor feed printouts of transmissions, it, it kind of – in a sort of meta Twin Peaksy way, explains why him and the Log Lady also get on so well because they're both from very different yeah, perspectives and from some, very yeah. opposite ends. Yeah. yeah, they're they're yeah they're in tune with whatever is going on here, or at least they're or they're aware of it. They're aware and open yeah. to hearing whatever yes, it is. Her exactly. from a very spiritual side, and him from a very sort of like this is my job, but like I have to be open to it, which is right. why he comes to Cooper. And has this printout of just insane, ridiculous computer data. And then between a bunch of slashes on one page out of like a solid inch of printouts, it says the owl, owls are not what they seem. Yeah. I love that Cooper was like, how did you know to come tell me this? And I thought he was going to talk about the log lady. But in goofy <laughs> Twin Peaks style, he's like, well, uh, this morning, this printed out. It just said Cooper, Cooper, Cooper. Yeah. It's like, okay. How, how did you know to come to me? Uh, the computer also printed oh, out your name, your name. Which is it obviously just brought back the giant to me in the same mm-hmm. because this style yeah. of communication is yes. incredibly cryptic thing followed by 
you will need medical attention to yes. a guy who's bleeding out where this is like insane message. And I was like, what do I do with this? Yeah. Tell Agent Cooper about it. Oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Mysterious uh, message. Look at Leo's house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, thanks. Sorry. Incredibly ambiguous thing. And then incredibly unambiguous thing that doesn't actually answer it, but it's at least like, right. But I'm, I'm proving to you that I'm coming from not, a helpful place. But it's impossible to misunderstand. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, oh, because, sorry, then Cooper's dream is intercutting between Bob and Ronette mm-hmm. and the giant and Garland Briggs saying the owls are not what they seem. So, like, right, right, right. And then he ends up seeing Bob hiding behind a bed frame with an owl superimposed over his face. Mm-hmm. You see, see Sarah, Sarah Palmer, Palmer coming down the stairs yeah. and sort of, but like and that Bob's is just like looking to the camera and laughing and laughing, but that is definitely like the owl message, the Bob stuff, all like literally just goofily combining into yeah. there being like a bad, yes. like which digital I, effect. Yeah. Which but, I think there's a sense there. David Lynch has a certain sensibility that I find fascinating, which is like, I think there are sometimes he doesn't care about aesthetics in that yeah, way. He just has kind of really bad taste sometimes. Like I feel like that extends to his music choices sometimes. And also just to the sort of way that he represents the weird or the surreal or the eerie. Like when he, I, when I, it's a thing that happens in purely inside of the camera, he cares very much about yeah, it. Exactly. But when it's this sort of thing, I think he's just like, get the point across, right. put an owl on yes. Bob's face. Exactly. Okay. Whatever. That's if all it yes. needs to be. If done. his tools are just, actors framing and like camera movement and like lighting and lighting and maybe like some light sound design he it's like amazing right and it's totally singular voice and then as soon as he he adds in like montage or like pastiche or uh um uh it, it feels what i'm looking for um compositing yeah it, it often gets so cheesy it feels to totally me it, it feels it. to me like it, it almost is as far as him not wanting it to be good. Yeah, I think that's like, that cuz I think I think if you had an art director that was like I will do the owl on Bob's face and it will look seamless as if you had made it happen in camera, I I suspect that Lynch would say that is absolutely not what I want. Yeah. I want this to literally be an <laughs> owl on top of this guy's face and I want you to know that that's what it is. Yep. Uh like yeah, it's also it's, like it's the work it's that right. he doesn't touch directly, you know, like there's a lot of mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Well, but if you've seen have you seen Inland Empire? I haven't seen Inland Empire. Because Inland Empire is like I, it is rough, but clearly intentionally so. It's just David Lynch with a handheld shit ass like VHS camera, a piece of shit camera. I think the movie looks like garbage. Um, but again, he knows what he's doing and he's doing it on purpose. And I don't entirely know what the purpose of it is. I think but- part of it, honestly, with Inland Empire was him saying, I can shoot a thing that I can release theatrically and I'm free from having to print my film. I'm free from having to do a crazy convoluted editing process. I can just make the movie. Like that yeah. was actually part of it. But then oh, of course, but, obviously he still played but a different his, director would achieve that in a different way. Right. It would look like a Danny Boyle movie or something right. like 28 days exactly. later or something. Yeah, right. Whereas yeah, with Lynch, obviously he also likes, I've seen just clips from that movie, but it's and the trailer, but it's very clear that he likes the aesthetic of it speaks to him in a way that makes him do the movie a different way than he would have done yeah. Twin Peaks or his movie shot on film. Right. And even Mulholland Drive, which is a very sort of visually beautiful movie in a way that – in a sort of more traditional way that Inland Empire is not, has stuff in it that's like that, right? Like there's compositing in that movie that is like clearly not yep. – doesn't care whether it looks I, I think I realistic think, in a traditional I sense. I just don't – it makes me think that he doesn't see effects – the same way that a lot of people see effects. No, like he true. literally He's sees it as tr- these two images exist inside of the frame and the two images in and of themselves can be interesting or, you know, right. well-created or harmonious. possession is interesting. Yeah. Right. But like – but the actual – But he's not trying to create a seamless reality in which those two things are actually right, like, the same like, thing. I don't think David Lynch would care if there's a bad blue screening shot if the two elements that were being blue, screen- blue screened – meant things in and of themselves. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's and he very doesn't strange. care that much because there are bad blue screenshots in David Lynch movies. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, weird. It's really, it's really odd. Yeah, it is strange. It's, but that, that stupid composited owl, that's like all that I could think about during yeah, that was just like, oh, David Lynch is weird. He doesn't yep. care about this. What is going on? Like, why don't you care? Yep. But at the same time, it doesn't really take you out of the moment yep. that much. I mean, you kind of go, what? But at the same time, you're also too busy, like, ingesting and digesting oh there's an owl over bob's face oh there's all these lines about the owl oh we saw bob in the room like it all like yeah and just the intensity of the of the montage although man it is less effective than the crazy montage from last episode yeah oh for sure but um all yeah the the what can you do the though? kind of weird surreal twin pieces of in this episode really um runs the gamut 
for me in terms of like some of the most effective stuff in the series and like some of the sort of not particularly effective stuff in the series. And I like uh, what's the most effective in this episode for you? Bob heading towards the camera. Oh yeah. Yes. Fucking incredible. Like that's amazing. It's yeah. That's like a, has a hallmark amazing. shot of the show. I think yeah, it yeah, really is yeah, yeah. incredible. Um, so anyway, the episode basically wraps up after this. Um, Audrey gets caught by Blackie. Oh, Cooper is woken up from this. Oh, dream. that's right. Cooper is woken up from the dream by Audrey calling him. The camera pans to show the stupid note still under his. T- it still isn't noticed. And then the note is rendered moot because Audrey says, yes, exactly. I saw you in your tuxedo. Yeah, right. Yes, exactly. Um, so yes. Whatever she said about that. She said you looked really smart in your tuxedo. You look like a movie star. Like, oh, movie star. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then she says, I'm in trouble, but I'm going to come home now. And then Blackie hangs up the phone on her. Mm hmm. With the the with department the other, guy, which yeah. kind of shows that she definitely didn't have a plan in terms of apprehending that guy because he's just there now. It feels out. like she was like Audrey. Audrey definitely misestimated the amount of agency she had over that guy because she was like, "I'm Audrey. I get what I want. I'm going to cry to the police. I'm going to tell my dad." Yeah, and he was like, "Whatever." Basically, yeah. it seems like his response yeah. was, "Okay." sure i anyway i'm gonna go tell the person who's literally holding you hostage right now and you will continue to be held hostage goodbye yeah um man to jump way back Mm because sorry this when the when the horns are talking and leland comes in and ruins stuff ben says to jerry kill leland palmer oh yeah yeah where how did that scene end i don't actually remember because he says are you jerry basically says are you serious right and i don't remember i don't remember if that actually left in a way that implied Anything would come out of that or not? I don't think that it did, but um, um, I don't. Yeah, I don't remember. I, oh, I remember Jerry. Jerry, go, like, oh, he says, "Is, is this, this real, real ben, ben, or, or some strange or twisted dream?" Yeah, and then it just then we're at Leo in the hospital. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a weirdo Jerry is. That was a definite weird writing moment, but also his response is understandable. Of just like <laughs> because. <laughs> This whole mill thing it should be far simpler than it actually is, and right. every time they, anything goes weird, they mm-hmm. they can't catch a break on their stupid villainous scheme. Mm-hmm. But but also, what a goofy! Their relationship was very strange in that entire scene because Jerry like tried to muscle in on the call with the Icelanders and be like Jerry here, but and then and he says one dumb thing, and Ben kind of rolls his eyes, just takes the phone back, and says, "Hi, it's Ben again." And like, yeah, I don't know what a what a strange group. Oh, man, we didn't talk about a bunch of really dumb stuff in this episode, like Andy getting caught up in tape and all of that. Oh, right. Whatever. Whatever. Um, you want to just jump to mail, or did you have, like, were there any sort of all-encompassing thoughts that you had about this week's episode? No, I think I got mine out of the way before we started the yeah. recap. Yeah. I, You know, I it def- this feels like the real start to season two to me. Yeah. Um, the premiere, obviously, there's a reason that all this sort of cliffhanger stuff happened at the end of season one. Cause that's what happens at the season finale. But like the opening episode of this season really was the capper to that. And then this just feels like everything is getting started again. Yep. Yeah. Um, slowly. Yeah. I, I had a, I had something I was going to say, but I'll save it until later in the episode. I'm sorry. Why? Listeners. How much more of the, episode? I think we're almost done with the episode. I mean, like when we're talking about really forward looking stuff. Oh, spoiler section. Yeah, spoiler section. Mm, you want to skip a spoiler section? Well, we should read a reader mail. If we've got any. Okay. Let me look. Um, Let's see here. Um, I like most of our reader mail is... Oh, here we go. So Andrew Yoder says, Hi, Chris and Jake. When I first watched Twin Peaks a couple of years ago, I recommended it to two friends, one of whom was bothered by its portrayal of women as powerless victims. Even the women who appear powerful at first, Catherine, Audrey, Blackie, and Josie, become victims or turn out to be under control of some man. The other route to power for women in Twin Peaks is through Laura's world, taking on the persona of the film fatale to control men, as we saw Donna trying out in the previous episode. But the show makes it clear that this is a path to self-destruction. Even though the men also fall into a couple of basic categories, the gross Hanks, Leos, Bens, or the dopey Jameses, Eds, Peets, these characters still have more agency over their stories and others than the women do. Rewatching Twin Peaks again, it's hard to ignore this. I know you guys have talked a bit about the men and women of Twin Peaks in general, but could you guys try to unpack why Lynch and Frost wrote it that way? Part of the problem is that I don't know if Lynch and Frost are trying to talk about something in reality, something more subjective or, impression- or expressionistic, or if they just want to entertain. I watched Blue Velvet recently and was about to recommend it to the same friend when I realized it too has this uh, problem. This makes me wonder if the problem comes with the territory of Lynch's idyllic American small town or if it's just Lynch. Mulholland Drive does a lot to break this pattern, but it has its own problems. You guys talked a little about the Lynchian qualities of Twin Peaks in past episodes. Have either of you read the David Foster Wallace essay on Lynch? 
I think it's where the term first came into being. At some point, I'd love to hear you guys try to figure out what Lynchian entails exactly and how Twin Peaks fits in his oeuvre. Thanks, Andrew. Um, maybe we save the Lynchian thing for later. Yeah, I think as far as the role of women and the agency of women and stuff uh, in this and in Blue Velvet, I feel like it's kind of tough to get too heavily into because I feel like David Lynch has all that stuff inside of both this and Blue Velvet because they operate – There's the construction of the world and of the characters before they're set in motion and before they sort of do the unique things that they do inside of these stories are constructed entirely almost out of tropes, either sort of just pop cultural tropes or filmic tropes or just narrative tropes. And I don't, I don't say that to therefore excuse anything good or bad done with it. But at the same, it's, it's tough because I, I don't think that David Lynch is interesting interested in commenting or not commenting on that stuff as much as he is interested in playing with the those structures and those characters as they have appeared in film and television for 50 years before Twin Peaks. Uh, I, which, I don't know. You can get into a pretty intense conversation or criticism of that or of David Lynch and I'm not suited suited to do that personally, other than to just sort of notice that it's happening and go, wow, okay, sure. Well, so my my um, thoughts on this are slightly different, I guess, than yours, which is that I think um, it is valuable to look when you're looking at the depiction of women, or not just women, but any character or, or type mm-hmm. of character. You have to look not only at the amount of literal agency that they apprehend in the world. You also have to look or that they control in the world, you also have to look at the ex- the extent to which their interior life and self sense of self is expressed on the screen. Mm-hmm. Because we know in reality that people have varying levels of direct agency on their surroundings, and often that level of agency is unfortunately a direct uh, or or partial result of like their position in our social structures. But we also know that those that like, regardless of that, uh, those people, all, all people have complex interior lives and um, like inherent complexity as people that stories can um, bring to the forefront. And I think that characters like Norma, uh, ha- I think Norma to me has one of the, the way she's played and written, I guess a lot of this probably has to do with how she's played. Um, there is, to me, more interesting stuff going on in her interior life than there is, for example, with Sheriff Truman. For most of the cast, actually. For most of the cast, yeah. Like, someone like Sheriff, Sheriff Truman has a lot of sort of, like, ostensible agency over physical actions in the world, but he's not really a particularly complexly drawn character in the way that someone like Norma or Shelley is like, unfortunately a lot of the um, dynamics around characters like Norma and Shelley come from the fact that they have been like abused or otherwise like affected by some male character, but they have an interior monologue that allows them to actually process the world yes. and reach a conclusion and act on it in a way that Sheriff Truman doesn't. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I Sheriff, Sheriff Truman is a, an example is and I think many of the male characters on Twin Peaks are like this. They are relatively two-dimensional in terms of how they react to events in the world and respond to them. Like, yeah, we've, we've kind of talked about this before, how a ton of the cast of, Twi- of the male cast of Twin Peaks is almost like one-note agents of chaos that basically wreak havoc on the or complex. Or they just follow a track. Yeah, on the, on the what are very complex and interiorly represented female characters. I don't know, like... That doesn't. That probably won't satisfy this person's friend as far as the types of agency the different characters have. But I, sure, I don't think that it's meant to be marginalizing. Yeah, women like the show is. No, I don't think it is at all. I mean, I think it, it actually tries to put you in their place as an audience member a lot more often than I think it does the male characters. Yes, I totally agree with that. I, I think that there obviously should be. Um, I mean, clearly, I think almost anyone would agree with this. 
like we should have lots of stories in which women express clear unambiguous agency just as we have plenty of stories in which men do that but there is also i think value to complexly portraying the reasons in a lot of cases that women as in reality often are denied that agency and yet nonetheless have like complex outlooks on the world and an interior self that like is that synthesizes all of those factors like you wouldn't want everything to be like that right you wouldn't want all drama to j- only ever depict put upon women who are repressed and oppressed and have no like direct physical agency but similarly like the you shouldn't downplay like the validity of the pure character side mm-hmm. of those things i don't know right um, i mean and i also david lynch probably really just does have kind of a weird retrograde small town america view of things but i think a more complex one than like you wouldn't actually see the equivalent of a major network television show in the 50s give as much credit to the interior lives of the women who are denied agency right. in that show. But you could see a show in the early 90s where Agent Cooper was female. Yes. Um, well, yeah, you look at something like uh, The X-Files, right? I mean, yeah. that's different because it's two it's it's male two, and a female character, but like, yeah, you know, they're both very strong characters. Um, yeah, I don't think that I quite said what I meant to say about the tropey setup stuff, but I meant when I said those were the things that they were drawn from before they were put in motion, that it was literally what I meant. I meant sort of, I don't know how to explain what I'm trying to say. No, I mean, I think you were talking more from the sort of cinematic standpoint, right? Yeah. Like these are the building blocks from which the story is told. And I think, and I think, I think those are the ones that he chose to make and you, and you can fault those at that level. But at the same time, what you were saying is I think it's worth looking at the pieces that he chose to use. And then the way that they're presented once they are set in motion is very different than how they're traditionally used. Like it's definitely not a story about women inside of that construct suddenly becoming aspirational characters filled with super agency over the plot. But at the same time, their plight is given a huge amount of time and a huge amount of the sort of sympathetic, empathetic eye in the story. Yeah. I don't know. Yep. Um, Which is not again to say that it's like without fault or above criticism or something. It's just that that's like the correct thing to do. Yeah. No, it's just what this show does. Um, Do you want to uh, move on to spoilers? I do. All right. So thanks for, uh, listening to this week's Twin Peaks Rewatch Podcast. As always, please don't continue listening if you have not seen the entire run of Twin Peaks and the film uh, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Peaks Rewatch, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Twin Peaks Rewatch, on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Twin Peaks Rewatch. Our website is twinpeaksrewatch.com and you can email us your thoughts on the next episode of this show at twin peaks at idlethumbs.net if you like the show please tell a friend or rate us on itunes the international tunes service (laughs) with this spoilers so jake you had a spoiler of some kind (sighs) okay well so this episode the we were talking very early in this episode about how this is sort of the episode of twin peaks that starts to that starts to sort of Break open, break out all the new stuff. And the thing that it reminds me of every time uh, Major Briggs goes to Cooper with that printout of papers and says, my job is to monitor signals from extraterrestrial space to see what what mm-hmm. comes across. And we were surprised when it was this. I remember um, my parents watched Twin Peaks when it was on, but I didn't. Um, I, I was. I didn't either. I was too young. I, I was, was you know, six or seven. Yeah. I don't think I would have been able to understand what was going on. But um, or if I. I would have maybe enjoyed some of it, whatever. They watched it uh, when it was on. They were really, really into it. They were like with the rest of the country, just into Twin Peaks. But I remember when I mentioned Twin Peaks to my dad like in high school or something, He, which uh-huh. um, wasn't that many years later, they already had in their brains, it was like, I think they put it back with like Dallas or The Fugitive or something as like just a show that was on a long time ago that they just stopped paying attention to. But my dad was like, yeah, it was this. We were really into the who killed Laura. Like I said, I just said Twin Peaks, and he was like, "Oh, who killed Laura Palmer?" No, no, no. And then, he, but then he said, um, "Yeah, but then it started getting into all this stuff with like aliens or something. I don't really know." Anyway, your mom and I stopped watching it. Yeah, um, man, that's a really good perspective. Like that's a really good yeah touchstone to have, right? Because 
then if you watch through the show, you know it's not about aliens. It turns out that the transmission that he received actually was coming from the woods, and it's the same thing as everything else. And this episode was just a reminder to me of of the conundrum that they must have been feeling when they're getting into season two, because I feel like the reason that Twin Peaks died was in part because it killed itself. Yeah. Because they do such a terrible job of seeding any story that takes place outside of the scope of Laura Palmer. Yes. And even this, like, because I, I didn't even remember this stuff happening as early as it did. I don't remember Wyndham Early, Earl being mentioned. I don't remember Garland Briggs or Major Briggs talking about this stuff. This early on. This early, because I've only seen the show once before, and I totally remember that stuff happening right on the cusp of Laura's murder uh, being solved. And I know it's it's we're not too far off. We're only a few episodes off, but I remembered it being like, those almost just go and like cross each other over an episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember that stuff as being kind of like the follow-up stories. Yeah. So, to, so you murder, can yeah. tell right now they're trying to seed it. Yeah. And in hindsight, had I like watching it now, had I not heard my dad say that I would have been like, Oh, you know, they're doing a better job than I, than I thought actually. Cause like the scene yeah. with Albert and Cooper mentioning Wyndham Earl and like that just like it bringing in the little synth drone and like those guys like it clearly impacts their mood you're like oh this is a big deal whatever it is yeah and Garland Briggs bringing Cooper that stuff uh being like it turns out that I've been a character a stealth character in the show the entire time what I actually am doing is monitoring and I'm receiving transmissions that correlate to your dream with the giant and you're like you know those that's like yeah. whoa these are big drops but at the same time, one, knowing where that stuff goes, which is to a storyline that I just could not <laughs> yeah, care I less know. about. I, I know, know there are people on the forums and people who write in who are like all about that stuff. Yeah. Um, but I could not care. I could not care less about it. Yeah. Um, and also just hearing that voice in my dad's head when that, when that guy walks into Cooper's room and has a print, print out of paper right. that says, <laughs> a message from space told me Agent Cooper. <laughs> yeah. And just, I just, that immediately made me imagine a bunch of people at home going, what? Um, what? Yeah. Uh-huh. And it makes me think like, I don't want to, like, my brain immediately did start like armchair show running Twin Peaks and just like, what if what if Major Briggs had just revealed a tiny bit more? What if, or what if that had not been written so, written so that it was from space? Right. Because it is on its face cheesy when you actually back up and know his whole storyline. He was a secret government operation that monitors alien transmissions, but also is near Twin Peaks because stuff uh, like this yeah, happens. Right. Like, had he just said that, it would have been yeah. cheesy. But uh-huh. had they owned it, and he was like, "It tur- okay, look, I'm one of you, actually." And they have a little moment of that where they talk about discretion and stuff. And Cooper's like, well, of course, we're government men or whatever. Yeah, but had yeah, he been like – government employees. Had he basically been like, we're working the same case, but I'm working it from a completely different angle than you, that probably would have made people like my dad be like, oh, shit. Instead of being like, uh, uh, excuse yeah. me. Because we, we already have this murder that is insane, full, full of crazy characters. We have like barbershop quartets singing in hotels. We have <laughs> – Cream corn disappearing from hands and giants and <laughs> yeah, right. midgets and people talking backwards and doing weird dances. And then to also be like, and aliens. Like for my parents specifically, that was like, that was the last straw with Twin Peaks, I think. Yeah. Was just the yes. mention of extraterrestrial transmissions on top of everything else. Yes. I even felt that way watching this episode. Yep. And I know where that stuff goes. Yep. It, I, I wish that they just kept it, just tamp it down a tiny bit. Because I, I, I felt that way at two moments. I felt that way at that moment. And I also felt that way during the initial scene where it pans over to the guy who calls Josie. And I'm yes. like, I don't care about okay. this. Like, the thing who cares about that this whole, guy. I don't remember what how he tracks, but the thing that I do remember, the one, because if you're listening to this part, you've seen the entire show enough that you're familiar with it enough to listen to this. And I imagine many of you feel the same way as me. And Chris, I know that you do too, which is just basically screw the middle of season two. Like yeah. it can just <laughs> die. The one thread in it that I love is the return of Catherine. Really? I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But I love that she takes off that stupid disguise and it's her. And I think the only reason that I like it is because I wasn't expecting it. I totally didn't think it was her. Yeah, you don't know it's Piper Laurie. That's for sure. And Pete's Pete's response is so good. And I I, I think that we can talk about that when we get to that stupid episode. I hate that storyline. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But what I like about it (laughs) is that Catherine comes back and she was like – she did actually have the upper hand. Her scene where she's like, let me think, and she just disappears. Yeah. Obviously, it could not yep. have led to where it led, but I'm glad that they at least had it be like, 
fuck everyone. You know, Catherine's back. owned by Catherine Martin. But I, I remember reading on the forum also that that um, the actor who plays Pete, whose name I just I just blanked on, didn't know Jack that that Nance. Yeah, I don't I don't think he knew that that character was Piper Laurie until she took the disguise <laughs> off. I will get we'll confirm yeah, or deny we'll get, that we'll get in, in yeah. like right in a few thousand episodes. But like. <laughs> Man, that just here, those a couple, those few beats of like Winnemurl being mentioned and, uh, gar- the stuff with Major Briggs. Man, it just, it set my brain down the water slide of like, oh man. But just, yeah. It's, but oh, so the, the thing that I, sorry, I just totally distracted myself with all that stuff. The thing that it, the thing that it made me wonder is just, was there a possible way for Twin Peaks to pull up? Like, yeah, I, I imagine there is, but it, I don't know if David Lynch and Mark Frost where they were at when they were making the show at the time that they were, and um, I don't know if they could have. And, and also, we talked a lot about in within the murder of Laura Palmer, the sort of interesting aesthetic and crazy value that having all these different directors and different writers with a sort of loose, a loose feeling showrunner model on this show. Yeah, yeah. It worked for the show for a long time. But I feel like we are right now in the moment where that starts working against them. Yes, and I think part of that is because – part of it may have been because this was a long season that got great. Well, I mean I guess it was a It's a normal standard TV season but like – Network before. TV show season of the, of the era. But but man, that is not right for Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks is way too like if, loose if around the edges two to be able to three, support – I think they could have done it. If yeah, they had, I, I If they agree. solved if the they, murder of Laura Palmer yeah. but seeded the Wyndham Earl stuff a little bit, cut yeah. the alien mention and then been like – Agent Cooper's past in Twin Peaks season three or whatever, right, but man, yeah. oh, it's yeah. it's it's tough because like the way that they chose, like I don't know, because I think we're gonna cut this off anyway. We're done. I don't know. It's I, just, <laughs> I would thought we were gonna talk about about Leland, but on second thought, I don't really know if I have anything to say about it. I mean, it's horrible. Yeah, I don't know what to think about. Just I mean, it's like the, it all raises the, a bunch the sort of questions child about, mall about station like, angle. where Especially, Bob comes from. Yes, and, yeah, and if you've seen. Um, Fire Walk With Me, I think it makes um, uh, Leland remembering Bob from his childhood even more disturbing and yes. distressing. Um, yeah. It's just – it's horrible. I mean it's like horrible in a really effective way but man. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what I thought about this when I saw the show for the first time. I don't remember either. I, yeah. yeah I, I don't really want to belabor it. I, I want to I wrap this up. Yeah, no. But uh, – We're getting – we're not that many episodes away from this stuff yeah, all is coming to a head anyway. It's true, exactly. That's why I don't know the point. Yeah. yeah. So, um, cool. Well, thanks for joining us again. Uh, we will be, we're going to, tr- we'll hopefully be back next week with the next episode. I'm going to be out of town, but we may try a remote recording setup um, and just see what happens. Yeah. After with that, after missing one, we're going to try and not miss two in such close proximity, but yeah. there's, a, there's a chance. So look out. Yeah. Um, sorry if so. Uh, and thanks for uh, sticking with us this long. If you have been again, tell a friend if you like the show. Thanks, guys. Bye.